Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another edition of Rural Route, a Red Shirt Friday edition, where we wear reds to say thank you to the men and women who have risked so much to protect our freedom, the United States veterans. But what we do, Bill Risha, when we gather is continue to address the issues between food producers and food consumers. Bill Rischel joining us today from Lincoln, Nebraska. I remember the last time you joined me on this program. I'm wondering if you do. Um, not sure I do. <laughs> that's that's not that's not totally uh I'm completely dis disheartened you don't remember our conversation. <laughs> um Range Beef Cow Symposium and we were at, in, at, were at we in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska. We were in Scotts Bluff or maybe gearing, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. That was yeah. a while ago, Bill. That was quite a while ago. I'm getting to the point where everything's quite a while ago. <laughs> You tried to tell me yesterday that you're now approaching 80. I, that, that's hard to believe. You, it's hard for you. You, you ought to be me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I can only just live through you. I can't be you. Hey, this will bring back some memories for you. Uh, January 3rd, I am flying to Harrisburg, PA for the second year in a row to judge at the Pennsylvania Farm Show. Yes, sir. That's I still... spent most of my birthdays in my youth at the Pennsylvania Farm Show. Yeah. It's still yeah. a fantastic event. Yeah. it's uh, There's a long and storied history there. We, uh, entire family, I have, I have two brothers, there were three boys, and the entire family, all three of us, showed 4-H calves, and all three of us at one time or another had the grand champion steer at the Pennsylvania Farm Show. Wow. Was it in the middle of town, I'm sure, just like it is today in Harrisburg? Same building. It's also uh, the same facility where they hold the Keystone National, if you're familiar with that one. I it's, am. I've never attended, but I know it's in October, I think. Yeah, it's a fall event. Yep. I don't really have a good reason to go to Pennsylvania in January other than when they call and there's such a, a, a group of people in Pennsylvania and Maryland that share our values. And when I say our values, I mean tied to, to roots and agriculture and Pennsylvania continues to be a better agricultural state than anybody recognizes unless you're from Pennsylvania, Bill. Yeah, I think that's a great statement. I love to tell the story about when we fed cattle when I was a kid. Uh, it wasn't a big deal, but we'd feed 100 to 150 head of steers a year. And a little background on that. In the early years, we bought feeder cattle out of that uh, Virginia country. Oh, sure. Uh, Shenandoah Valley, a great reputation for uh, feeder calves and their, their markets through that part of the world. And then in the later years, my dad had made a contact with an order buyer uh, in Montana. I can't remember the name of that individual, but uh, through him, we bought feeder cattle from Montana and they were shipped to us on boxcars that made their way through the railroad system to Harrisburg, which sit on a sidetrack up there. And my dad being the guy he was, 
could not wait to see these feeder calves that were coming from Montana. And so we drove that single two-lane highway all the way from York to Harrisburg, some 20 miles. It took a lot longer than it does today. <laughs> Maybe and, not uh, traffic being what it is. <laughs> so, so, so he he tried to look through the, the slats on the boxcar to see what those feeder cattle look like. Couldn't, couldn't wait to get them home and, you know, get them unloaded. And of course, we didn't have semis. We didn't have a lot of stock trailers around. There were all those stake-bodied trucks, you know, with racks on them. And you get a couple of neighbors to help you and unload the cattle from the boxcars in, in York onto these stake-bodied trucks and find their way home and put them on feed. And the, 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 the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, was that uh, when they were ready for harvest, we went through commission companies at the Lancaster Livestock Yards. And when I was a kid, that was the largest terminal market east of Chicago. Mm. And you, you were talking about the agriculture in that part of the country that people don't recognize. Lancaster was a thriving, dynamic center for harvesting fat, fat stock, fat cattle, hogs, and the like. And much of that was due to that kosher market on the East Coast, um, the Jewish market that was kosher beef. And when they slaughtered those kosher cattle or anything kosher in, in livestock, uh, they just, you know, just used the front ends. I don't know how many know that or not, but uh, front two middle thirds. meats and, and the, yeah. the back meats on that critter were not part of their, their diets there. Uh, Bill, I'm going to give you a little test. I, I didn't give you any indication to be a quiz, but I'm going to give you a test. What county did you just say you sold those steers in? Well, that was that was Lancaster. Okay. What county do you currently live in? Lancaster. Do you hear the difference? You'd say Lancaster, Pennsylvania, one syllable. Lancaster, Nebraska, two syllables. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we recognized that as soon as we got to this country. I, I want to tell you another geographical interesting fact is the town that, that I grew up in was York. And there's a highway that goes through York, Pennsylvania called Highway 30. No, sure. And it was the first continental U.S. highway in the whole United States. And at least it was paved, but Highway 30 was a highway when it was still just a gravel road across much of this country. Mm -hmm. And my dad traveled that when they were vacationing with his mom and pop. And uh, he would tell me a story about places in the West where you'd come to like a section fence or a county fence or a state line. And in the days of those first early automobiles, there'd be a ramp up one side, flattened out on top, and a ramp down the other side. You didn't have to get out and open a gate if you didn't want to. But I'm just picturing how that would have been in those days. And he told that story very often about, you know, how uh, how they crossed a lot of those fence lines with an automobile without getting out and opening a gate. 
I thought, sure, you were going to tell me that you live on Highway 30 in Lincoln, which comes right out of York, Nebraska. But also goes right straight through North Platte, which is where we <laughs> spent most of our life. You don't get very far off of the, the center of Earth, do you? <laughs> I try not to. I have a lot of people always, their first question they ask me is, how in the world did you ever get to Nebraska? And I tell them, covered wagon. <laughs> How I have a minute and a half before I'm going to shut you down. How did you get to Nebraska? I'm sure I know, but I don't remember. Well, the, the true story rather than a covered wagon is that uh, I had a, I had a, 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 a really a desire to get to the Western part of the United States for a long time. Even before Barb and I got married, uh, I had told her that someday I thought I wanted to be in the cattle business somewhere in this part of the world. And Nebraska, South Dakota, Montana was a lot of my thinking in that. And settled on Nebraska, and I, I knew enough about a lot of these areas, these different states I just mentioned, to know that water is a pretty rare commodity in some of those countries, mm -hmm. some of those ranching countries. And Nebraska was unique in that respect. And I really felt like if you're going to raise cattle, Nebraska was the place to try to be. So when the guy I was managing a ranch for at Hillsdale, New York at the time, decided that he had to take care of his other business and decided he was going to sell the farm and the herd of cattle that I'd helped put together and assemble for him. So we, uh, we stayed and helped him dissolve that cow herd and and he was so good to us that was a decision that wasn't easy could have very easily just sent out a resume made some calls tried to get another job and in fact had other offers and turned them down to pack up three little girls and put them in an old uh, galaxy 500 ford and trek across the united states land in north platte nebraska and i tell people we ran out of money and couldn't go any further no, that's probably more true than we really want to believe. Bill Rischel, yeah. roll out. We'll be back with more after this. I know we shouldn't probably do this, but it's what we do. We raise Piedmontese. I shouldn't talk about Piedmontese with one of the most renowned Angus breeders here on the program, but it's about choice, and you as a consumer have a choice for a tender beef product. You don't need to go to the store. We'll have the tender beef delivered to your door. cpbeef.com. Check out the protein plethora and order today. Welcome back. Roll Route Redshirt Friday. Bill Rischel joining us here, uh, walking down memory lane. I, I called him yesterday because I had something I want to pursue. I don't know that we're even going to pursue that. doesn't matter. This is all good stuff. Uh, you mentioned I have been to where that stockyards was. There's a fantastic restaurant still where that stockyards used to be at Lancaster. Yeah, I, when, when I was a kid and we shipped cattle there, Dad would always make a trip over there to you know, see the cattle sell. And that was fascinating, Trent. The, in those days, in these old livestock markets that don't exist anymore, um, there would be order buyers working for the major companies that were in that business. And they'd be horseback. And a lot of them have a big whip in their hand while they're horseback, you know, cracking that whip going up and down the alley. 
And they were the ones that were doing the business between the seller, in this case, our family, mm -hmm. and the buyer, meaning the packing plants on the other side of that equation. And so it was fascinating thing to see that. But the best part of the trip was gone was always to go to the restaurant at the stockyards, at Stockyards Inn. Such a fabulous place to eat and such a good meal. And the days when I was a kid, some of those times that you got to go out and have a meal at a restaurant were few and far between. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I remember clearly the day I ate there, Bill, because it was I went to England on February 24th of 2020. I came back from England on March the 5th, 2020, and I had a speaking engagement in Lancaster County, and a friend of mine took me to the Stockyards Inn, and it was, so I ate there just before the world changed forever. And I interviewed yeah. the family that owns that, and the history of that place is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, they used to have a, in the, oh, it was always uh, early, early fall. It was after the county fairs were kind of over, and they had a kind of an inter, interstate-type steer show there held right at the stockyards and out in the parking lot where they could, uh, you know, have a ring of cattle and uh, judge them. And I actually, as a kid and, and my brothers, we all showed at one time or another right there at the stockyards in that kind of interstate type show, I would call it. Mm -hmm. so. And still today, just down the road, Next to the Maple Leaf Buffet is one of the best stockyards in the entire nation at New Holland Livestock. Yes. And that's not just livestock. It's, it's, I mean, it's hay. It's every commodity just about you could think of in agriculture, really. It's a very, very famous location in that part of the country. It's well known for miles around. So, Bill, we are preparing, and I'm going to uh, be a part of something this year at the National Western. We're, we're going to bring back that old feel for the National Western because since 2020, it hasn't been what it was, and we've got new management this year. And you made me think about several things talking just since we started. I interviewed a gentleman in Oklahoma, and you, you probably know him. He's an Angus breeder. At the time I interviewed him, he's like 84 years old. And he sent a load of Angus bulls to the last Chicago International. And I think about, well, that was what, what in the 60s. Yeah. And I think about putting bulls on trains and sending them. And I look back at the history of the National Western, which is easier to find what I focused on than the, the Chicago International. But the number of people, 1906 was the first National Western, the number of cattle and the number of people that show up at these events when you did not have a combustion engine, you're like you were talking about earlier, it's all done by training on hoof. It's amazing the participation back in the early 1900s when you didn't have mechanical transportation. Well, and, and to your point, one of the great livestock shows of that era was the first great... Uh, show up there in Massachusetts that took place that was like a world livestock exposition. 
Mm-hmm. And there was people that brought cattle from the central part of the United States to that. And a lot of those were put on boxcars. And there were those caretakers that really went on the boxcar with the cattle. I'm sure you've heard those stories. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's lots of them. And I know, I know people that did that. I never did. But we had a bull one year when I was at Top Hill Farms in Hillsdale, New York, that I had bought to be a herd sire there at Top Hill and clear out of from Alberta, Canada, and wanted to show him at the National Western and the expense and everything involved in just trucking that far. I uh, talked to the, the, the people of Millbrook, New York with uh, Walbridge Farms, which was a a very familiar name in the purebred Angus business in those days from Millbrook. And they took cattle out there every year and still put them on a boxcar. This was, this was in the early 1970s. And so I talked to them and got an agreement where I could pay a fee, put him on with their cattle and uh, have the care that I knew would be necessary, you know, because they were already caring for show cattle of their own. And so we got that bull to Chicago on a boxcar and showed him he stood third in class in a two-year-old class in, in, in Denver. Did I say Chicago earlier? I meant, I meant Denver. No, you said Chicago. National Western. Yeah. So um, anyway, we, did, we got that accomplished. And uh, the two bulls that beat him in the two-year-old bull class were the Grand and Reserve Grand Champion Bulls at the National Western Day. Wow. Champion being a bull called Anconian Dynamo that a lot of people would know about or have heard of. And so that's a little history on that. So had some exposure with it, but it was uh, amazing. But that, if, if you read a little history on that Eastern States Exposition, I think they call it, Livestock Exposition. And when I was in college and on a judging team, we actually judged in a collegiate judging contest at the Eastern States Livestock Exposition. Was your team any good at livestock judging? Decent. We won the international <laughs> in Chicago in 1966. <laughs> that was that was a loaded question. I saw that one coming. That was a curveball from way out there. See this shirt I'm wearing? Yeah. It says Texas Baseball Ranch. And that's my oldest daughter and her husband. And they teach pitching to every level of baseball in the business. Really? Yeah. Their son is now a professional baseball player, and last year at Double A ball and Corpus Christi hooks for the Houston Astros. I'll be darn. And, and that's made possible because your team won the Chicago International in 1966. <laughs> no, but it's the closest they ever got any of those girls to ranching the Texas baseball ranch. <laughs> hey, I share your pain. I have we have three daughters, and I don't know where that's going to go either. So anyway, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be okay. Yeah, I know it'll be okay. But, um, 1966 was a while ago, Bill. I mean, kind of happens to be the year I was born. Yeah. You said that in the phone the other night and I knew you were sticking a knife in me. <laughs> well, at least I didn't do it publicly. Oh, wait. Yeah, I just did. Uh, again, I got a, a minute and a half, so I'm, I'm reluctant to get you into something big, but what I wanted to just touch on is that you talk about those cattle that were shown in the 60s, 70s, 80s even, 
Because today in the world of livestock, if you have a show animal, there's almost a negative connotation. It wasn't that way back in those days. Those were performance bulls. We had as much data as you could possibly get at that time. And uh, the, that world has changed a bit. Changed a lot and, and absolutely needed to. Um, there's so many subjects, Trent, that you've, you're made, you're got going through my mind right now. And we probably don't have quite enough time for all well, of it. Here's what we do have. We have 30 seconds for me to let people know that we're going to be halfway through this broadcast. And when we come back, we'll pick up on all of those subjects that Bill Rischel has running through. He's uh, ruminating like the very <laughs> animals that he took care of and produced and genetically enhanced for so many years. We're back with the second half of Roll Route after this. Just watch. Well, in today's world, many people are talking about nitric oxide as a part of healthy living, but Dr. Nathan Bryan steps in here because how do we know the difference between one nitric oxide supplement and another one, Nathan? Well, there's several things you look for. Is the people that are that are that formulated or backing that product ever published a paper in the nitric oxide literature? Do they know anything about the basic enzymology and biochemistry of nitric oxide? Because here's what people do. Put a lot of ingredients in a bag or in a capsule and call it nitric oxide. You have to understand how the human body makes nitric oxide. You got to understand what goes wrong in people that can't make it. And then you got to pro provide product technology that actually fixes the reason you can't make nitric oxide. If you're low in testosterone, you don't give precursors or things because you've lost the ability to produce testosterone. What do you do? You actually give the actual molecules. Same thing with women with hormone replacement. Full details and order the product at no2u.com. That's no number two letter u.com. Put Trent as your coupon code and I pay the shipping. Wait a minute, that's not good. Welcome back, Trent Luce, alongside Bill Rischel, joining us from Lancaster County, Nebraska, not to be confused with Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Uh, before we get to what you were ruminating on during the break in the show cattle versus the real world in today's compared to the 60s and 70s, I just had this little flashback to the day that you and I did Rural Route last, which we mentioned was the Range, Range Cow Beef Symposium a long time ago, but I also remember who I met for the first time that day, because I had known you, but first time I'd met Jennifer Boca, who you probably know as Jennifer Altenberg. Right. And you, you wouldn't remember this because it didn't scar you like it did me, Bill. But they asked her, I don't remember who it was. Somebody asked Jennifer to come up on stage and place the class of cowboy hats and I was one of the four, and she put me dead last in that class of cowboy hats. And with her reasoning, was just it was not worthy at all. I scored her like an eighteen on that class. And by that the way, I will not cut it in in competition. Twenty years later, I'm still wearing the same style of hat, Jennifer Boca. So take that. Yeah. <laughs> She happens to be the livestock manager of the National Western at this moment in time, Bill, just so you know. <laughs> I was aware of that. And, and I just wanted to uh, remind you that uh, she she may not like the... Uh, are you going to send her a copy of the tape? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got a feeling she'll send it to me. <laughs> 
so anyway, uh, you were ruminating about the, the type of show cattle in the 60s and 70s versus today. Where, where were you going with that? Well, it's it's no secret. Most of my life in the cattle business, particularly the purebred cattle business, where show cattle were involved. And by the way, this was true of all species. It's not just cattle. But the issue was that the only means and method of selection in those eras, clear from the beginning of time of show cattle, and if you want to go back to 1900, mm-hmm. was visual appraisal. And at the end of the day, back at the ranch or back at the farm, whichever your case would be, uh, everybody had the same issue. And that was that uh, the only, well, let me just back up a little bit. When I selected cattle for the Nile sale in Montana back in the late 70s and 80s, um, and they were just Angus cattle, by the way, and if I I'd go out into a pasture and they'd say, okay, here's the bred heifers. Take your pick. Not everybody did that, but a few did. And uh, same with heifer calves, which, by the way, when I did this was August and they were still nursing their mothers. Um, That was all visual appraisal. And then we would go back to their kitchen, sit down in the kitchen at the kitchen table, and they bring out their box of records. And it was like, recipes in a recipe box right it was three by five cards up in the corner would be the cow's number and a lot of cows in those days weren't even wearing tags yet they were wearing neck chains uh it was it was you'd have a uh the year you'd have a birth date of the calf the sex of the calf and maybe if you were lucky if it was late enough you might even have a weaning weight but at least you had the previous year's data, the, the half sibs, you know, or, or could have been full sibs. And that was about it. That was all the records you had. And so it was an era of time in cattle selection where if you were going to really breed a set of cattle that was going to have an impact, you had to have some kind of a enough previous knowledge to at least in your own mind have a phenotype that you liked or that you matched to some kind of performance. And I have come to the point in life where I look back on all of this and I think that it really is that look, and and I'm convinced of this, and some people might say, well, this guy's really falling off the edge, but it's the hormone balance in these cattle that really makes them do what they do. And I don't think it's just cattle. I think it's in every species of livestock. And, you know, all, all of us as humans or as cattle, we all have both male and female hormones in us. And when those things are balanced right, cattle work better. Mm-hmm. They, just, they just do more of the right things the way we want them to do it. And in my later years here, more recent years in the cattle business, with all the information that we're inundated with today, uh, it proves me to be more right, more convinced of my thoughts on this than ever before, because now we got the records to back up everything that we did select them with our eyeball in those days. At least I have. And I think it's it's an incredible thing to watch how these cattle do function. And there are phenotypic looks 
there are phenotypic characteristics that these cattle have that backs me up on all this theory that I just shared about hormone balance in cattle. So what what would cause a hormone unbalance? Well, genetics certainly, I think, have an impact on it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you an example. In some cows or any animal that's, that's put into embryo transplant and flushed, when, when they get some of these hormones that are used in, in the process of flushing embryos, if they're, if they're left in NET, in embryo transplant, for a long enough period of time, longer than they should be, and some people are doing that, um, a lot of these females will change and they'll get a little crusty up front, a little mm -hmm. more masculine look. They get a little more of that hair that stands up, you know, down yep. their top line and up through that neck and crusty area. And it's, it's hormone. That's just hormone influence. You know, if you stay, take a step back and you think about this, and I can do this because I've been breeding uh, not only cattle, but pigs for my entire life. You think about, let's just take artificial insemination, one of the basic uh, technologies available to really improve genetic selection. But there's a negative side of that as well, because what it takes for a bull or a boar to generate semen that you're ultimately going to go inseminate a lot of animals may not be representative of what it takes for that sire to breed and settle the female in the real world environment. And when you select animals that is a that really doesn't take into consideration that hormone balance you're talking about generation after generation after generation you can pretty easily move away from it if you're not including that as part of your selection criteria no question about it and it's uh you know it's not just testicle size in bulls for example you can you can get really high quality semen out of some bulls that uh do not naturally transmit larger testicles, mm -hmm. which some people would find that to be kind of strange or weird and think that that can't happen, but it can. Unfortunately, we'd all be better off if those bulls that didn't have very big testicles or pass them along weren't that fertile. Right. That would be a blessing that that is just not out there because uh, it's not. Uh, I could I could name bulls, and I don't really want to do that because I'll be stepping on some people's toes. But uh, that were that transmitted smaller testicles that were pretty fertile cattle. Uh, the thing that you have to worry about, Trent, in this arena is what's happening to the female side of that at the same time. Right. And you know we've had for years ever since. Angus herd improvement records and the early days of BIF when uh, we started getting a lot more information as, that we call performance data today, we've had the ability to look at records like calving interval, for example, and it's always been a part of these records that come back from our breed association. And I think it's one of the best tools that we ever had to work with in this industry because calving interval is just saying that they're the most fertile cattle in the world. If that record shows that they have had almost every calf on a 365 day interval, uh, 
there's probably no other trait more valuable than in that than than calving interval to select really fertile females and you'll find that they have that good luck and they are productive. Now that means you still have to worry about a good functional udder. You still have to worry about feet and legs and you still got a lot of those novel traits that you still have to be a cattleman and a, and do some selection for and get it right that way. Because even though we have some EPDs for some of these today, until you get the database large enough that you're really representing a population the EPDs aren't as accurate as they need to be on some of those kind of traits until you just get a powerful database with lots of data. And eventually they all pretty well straighten out. The EPD becomes a really good tool. You you do know what one of the most reputable data-driven Angus breeders in the history of the, of the entire breed just said, right? Bill Rischel just said that while EPDs are a great tool, if you just go back to some of the basic fundamentals about feet, legs, scrotal circumference, and the basics that you were visually evaluating in the 60s, you make the same kind of progress. Well, it's you can. You can, but you better not get all whipped up in some four-color ad <laughs> that told you this is the greatest beast that ever walked on the planet because that doesn't cut it. Yeah, the Angus Journal is not putting you on staff. I'm just telling you, Bill Rischel, we're back with the last segment. Roll out. There's not going to be enough time. I'm telling you right here, right now. More after this. You know, we could talk, have this conversation with many cattle breeders, many livestock breeders, but the truth of the matter is the old ways are have changed so many different avenues. You know, for example, I remember as a kid helping my father fill the sprayer behind the tractor, the pull-type sprayer. He'd get chemical all over yourself. We did that regularly. Now, with these new Apache sprayers, it is precision agriculture. There's no waste. There's no spraying. There's only the ounce needed to get the job done. We often forget that farmers have pests and maintain those pests. We're talking about weeds and insects. You need reliable innovative equipment that's backed by service. Simpson Farm Enterprises and High Plains Apache both provide those Apache sprayer tools to get that job done. Put my comments to test. Call Simpsons and say, hey, what's Trent talking about? Let me let me know about this new model of Apache sprayer that's out right now. Put it to the test. Simpsonfarm.com, highplainsapache.com. It's all about minimizing the insects and the weeds. Welcome back. Roll route, Trent Loose. We are into the final segment on what's going to be too short of a show today. You know, the only thing, Bill Rischel, that would make this conversation better? What's that? If we had Martin Jorgensen sitting here with us weighing in. That would I miss, work. I miss that guy. Yeah, yeah, great, great man. So I want to get to where I actually thought we were talking about today. <laughs> it's tied into what we just talked about. But I had in my notion, you know, we all know that there were cattle killed by the government. In fact, after I talked to you yesterday, I talked to somebody that they got paid $3 a head to kill cattle during the 30s, leading into the war effort of actually the 40s. And I was told that that played a, a major contributing factor to 
almost 99, no, 99% of the cattle going back to one Angus bull named Earl Marshall. And uh, you took issue with that. And I wanted to just talk about what kind of genetic diversity do you see within just one given breed, which ultimately, if you talk about the genetic diversity within the Angus breed, you're talking about the genetic diversity within the greater beef industry across the pond, across the board, I should say, not across the pond. What, yeah. what is your rumination on that, Bill? Well, I've I've had for years, I've had to believe that there's as much difference within a breed as there is between breeds. That's that's a pretty strong... <clears throat> excuse I, me. I agree with that statement. That's a pretty strong statement. So when you're talking about these differences, that defies, somewhat defies, the thing you said about Earl Marshall and the impact on the population of cattle. But the thing that's always been a comparison for me driving down the road is I've often dreamed about breeding a set of cattle that's as uniform as a stand of corn. And I'm telling you that I don't know that that's really ever possible. Mm -hmm. I would say that that herd of cattle in North Platte, Nebraska, that we started years ago, that's now T.D. Angus at Richel Ranch, uh, is as close as I've ever seen a herd of cows having that kind of uniformity and there's still a spread in there and it shows up every year in the calf crop. If we don't quite get the matings done as well as we should have, um, the variation in that bull calf crop that comes up for sale and the replacement heifers is still pretty substantial. The one thing that we have with cattle that's very difficult to work with is environmental differences. And when you put environmental differences into breeding livestock, you start to change the, the end product comes out a little different all the time than what you think it should based on the genetics that went in the other end. Because environment can have negative impacts in many different ways on the net result that you're working for. And so, uh, we still, as an industry in agriculture, need to do a little better job of getting um, a handle on just good health, uh, feed efficiency, the microbiome in these cattle, which um, how many people have you talked to in the cattle business lately have ever mentioned the word microbiome? That's More than I used to, Bill. Yeah, more than you used to, and, and that's good because they're really understanding that a lot of these things, like when the rumen works properly, a lot of good things happen, and so you end up getting to the point to where you realize that there's a lot more going on than just genetics at the end of the day. You, you know what? I've had an awareness, and I've always touted myself as a geneticist or a genetic researcher. And it wasn't until COVID and the human experience that I started rethinking my genetics in livestock. If you have, for example, if you had a bull, if you had this bull that has a calf, the numbers are right. He's got that perfect phenotype. He's just excellent. You wean him. He comes off. Uh, you start him on feed and he gets sick. So you get out the right drugs. You fix him. You get him healthy again. Perfect. 
You go out, you collect him, you breed him to a bunch of cows because everything's right. Except we tend to forget that he got sick. Now, there are environmental reasons, of course. But when you genetically use an animal that got sick, you, there's something in that microbiome that's going to be passed to the next generation. And I can take that to vaccinations and treatments with antibiotics and anything else. We have not included animal health enough in our genetic selection criteria. No, and you work with these livestock long enough, in this case, cattle, you see it all the time. Um, I'll go back in history and remember a bull that was bred in Nebraska that I got an interest in and actually used. And there were some things about him that were quite unique and really, really special that I really liked. His growth factor and everything. At the end of the day, the birth weight was a little too high in him even to satisfy me. And I've liked bigger cattle. I like a little more birth weight. And I think that more times than not, some of these cattle that are born a calf a little bigger, as long as they're shaped right, you still have calving ease. That's what a lot of people still don't understand, I think. They just look at a birth weight. That's what EPD and and uh, calving ease direct and calving ease maternal, and that's a whole nother subject. We should mm -hmm. try and cover that one if we have time. But in calving ease direct, you can have calving ease without just low, light birth weight cattle. Uh but there's always the concern on the other end that your customer maybe is crossbreeding these bulls on another breed of cattle on cows that have a lot more birth weight in them. And if they need calving ease, they probably have to back off of birth weight a little bit more than some people do just because of the, the crossbreeding component uh, that goes into this and comes out the other, the other end on, on birth weight and maybe some calving difficulty because of it. It's, it's not easy. Uh, it takes a total analysis of what you're trying to accomplish and what you got to work with and how you put it together. It's, it's a little bit like a pretty tough crossword puzzle at the end of the day. Um, the one thing I do want to go back to is Kevin E's maternal, for example. One of the greatest traits to use in the Angus database is Kevin E's maternal. Because it's telling you it's all based on just first calf, two-year-old two year first calf heifers. And at the end of the day, the calving ease maternal is how those daughters of a bull calve. And what's the genetic component of that? And I, most people are not hardly ever look at that trait. Uh, and I never could figure that out because at the end of the day, if these calves are a little bigger by this sire, uh, but yet... His daughters are bigger pelvic and capable of handling bigger calves. The whole industry's better off at the end of the day, and most producers are better off at the end of the day. Is is having live calves out of that bull's daughters more important than the calves you're getting, you know, by the by the siring self out of the rest of the cattle that you're you're producing in your herd. Does that make when, any sense to you? Yeah, yeah, it does. And it makes me think actually about in 1999, two times I went to Sherikoff Island in Alaska. And I don't know how much you know about that, but in the 1850s, the Russians were invading what now is called Alaska. And they brought these Russian cattle and put on this island. It's uh, 32 miles wide by seven miles. And it's just this little island that still has these cattle on it that basically have been 
unmanaged since the 1850s, coming on 200 years. And so I went there twice. First time I went because the government wanted to remove the cattle. The cattle are still there. They need to stay there. But, Bill, where you would really find this interesting is that these cattle have evolved through the self-survival of the fittest. And I, I use this analogy because it all comes back to calving ease because only the ones that survive reproduce. And we we tend to forget that. But anyway, they were more buffalo-like. They had big, deep ribs, four ribs, and they had less muscle in their hindquarters. And if you think about that, that muscle in the hindquarter, we have selected those animals for a higher yield and more product per animal, when in the bigger picture, it probably isn't as natural with a bovine as we want it to be. I'll give you another great example while we're at, it, at this. And I've often used this with people when they talk about, what do you mean by masculinity or femininity? I said, the best example I can give you is elk. Yeah. I said, take a look at a bull elk. Big old crest on him, masculines all get out, powerful with that rack and antler and and not much butt. And I've had a lot of people tell me over the years, that bull doesn't have a mutt, enough muscle in his butt. And uh, some of them were cattle we bred and they were talking about. But Trent, I came to believe a very, very long time ago, and I've used it now for quite a few years leading up to the most recent years. And that is that the most powerful phenotypic observation you can make in all of these cattle is chest floor. And in my terminology, it's the engine that runs this animal. Mm -hmm. And the width through the floor of the chest trails all the way back to the spring of the rib down in the heart girth area, right behind the elbow of that front leg. And it goes further back into the loin eye area of these cattle and how big that loin eye is. And it's chest floor more highly correlated to ribeye area probably than any other trait in the animal. Certainly more correlated than how thick they are through their rear end. And that's pretty well proven in my mind that that's the way that should be. But when it comes to the female side of this, the chest floor is every bit as important again. And people will say, well, maybe you're putting too much muscle in them. And I'm, I'm convinced that if you have the right kind of a body shape in that rib cage area that I'm going to use the idea of a of an hourglass, if you will, uh, or uh, an egg standing on end might be a better description. But that is that that power in that chest and that constitution and inside dimension of these animals is unbelievably important. And if the health issue comes back into play, the feed conversion, the performance, utilization of feed, all of those things relate to this chest floor, the engine, and that spring in that rib and that heart girth. And they are major, major components in profitable cattle. And I don't know where the proper place to end is, but that seems like as good as we're going to get. Bill Rischel, it's long overdue. Can't wait to see you. And thanks for the, the chat and the walk down memory lane today. It's been fun, Trent. Thank you much. We'll do it again soon. We've All successfully right. journeyed down the path connecting food producers to food consumers. For Bill, Bill Richel, I'm Trent Lewis. Both of us reminding you that all roads do lead to a train car full of bulls headed to some stock show. If you like this type of discussion, trust me, there's going to be a lot more of it at the National Western, particularly on January the 6th. 
get full details about the Beef Day. It's Cattlemen's Day at the National Western, including the All-American Beef Battalion feeding, stakesfortroops.com. More details about that.